Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the show and I have to say this is one of the episodes that Mikey's been very keen to do for a long time. Mikey, you're talking about Australia and your invasive species. Yes mate, also too we will travel further afield later in the episode but right now I want to talk about, well, what do Australians think about when we think about the damage done by two invasive species? The first that come to mind... It's got to be the rabbits. The rabbit and the cane toad. Yes. Now we'll start with the rabbit. Now, the rabbit is still a record-breaking act of environmental vandalism. Mm -hmm. Starting in 1859, in less than 50 years, rabbits had spread to such a proportion that to this very day, our very first rabbit plague is still considered to be the largest and fastest colonisation of any mammal over any stretch of land ever recorded. And I've got a feeling you're going to blame the Brits for this. I'm going to blame the Brits, mate, because it all starts with them because we've actually had rabbits in Australia since the First Fleet. Oh, right. Yeah. Andrew Miller, the commissary officer for the First Fleet, he listed five silver grey bunnies mm. as part of the fleet's livestock. Right. But here's the thing. Those rabbits were kept in hutches. Sure. And they were bred just to be consumed. And that's pretty much how it stayed for the next few decades. However... There was a certain Christmas day in 1859 Mm. when the whole rabbit problem exploded. Right. And for this, we can thank the wealthy landowner, a guy called Thomas Austin. Mm. He was a self-made man. Let's put it like this. He was a bit full of himself. (laughs) And he had this massive estate in Winchelsea in Victoria. Right. And what he decided this estate needed was some plump wild rabbits, all the better for the hunting. Yes. So to this end, he actually had collected from Europe what was considered to be the best sport rabbits. Oh, right. Had them shipped to his estate, and as a Christmas gift no one ever wanted or asked for, he had the 13 survivors released as part of his Yuletide celebration. Right. But here's the thing. The rabbits bred. Mm. By 1880, they've crossed the Murray River. Within 16 years, they've turned up in Queensland. And by 1894, the rabbits even managed to traverse the Nullarbor (sighs) and were causing damage in Western Australia, resulting in massive hunts and attempts to get rid of them, Mm. of which probably the most famous or infamous was the installation of the rabbit-proof fences. Yes, of course. At the height of this program, Australia could lay claim to 320,000 kilometres of bunny-defying wire and post. Wow. Then we had the introduction of the myxomatosis in the 1950s, and of course the Khaleesi virus in 1995. And look, the hardy rabbits, they initially succumbed to both diseases, but they soon developed immunity. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> does sound a bit familiar. I'm to the point where their numbers are once again rising and threatening both commerce and the environment, and all because one wealthy landowner thought it would be fun to do a spot of rabbit hunting. But there's another unwanted side effect of the rabbit plague, 
well, it also helped the rapid expansion of the population of introduced red foxes. Ah. Another species thrust into the Australian environment because 19th century British settlers wanted a bit of sport. Yes, sorry. And nothing makes wealthy homesick Brits more happy than pursuing a fox to its grisly death. <laughs> Didn't Oscar Wilde once famously say the unspeakable in full pursuit full of... Full pursuit of the inedible, yes. Yeah, that's it, mate. But the fox problem actually has its genesis decades before Thomas Austin released his hunting bunnies. Right. From the 1840s on, there have been multiple misguided attempts to release foxes into the Australian bush. Mm. But look, it, it seemed as if this you know, notoriously cunning varmint couldn't actually establish a toehold in the Australian bush. However, an 1874 release in Victoria at the opulent Werribee Park estate by the Churnside family, hello Churnsides, <laughs> was the beginning of Australia's ongoing fox infestation. Now, it makes a fair bit of sense. This happens after the rabbits are released in 1859. Mm. So the foxes have got something to eat on. Yes. So but- they expand, but unfortunately, they don't just stick to eating rabbits. Mm. Between these two species alone, foxes and rabbits, Australia has lost some 20 mammal species in the last 150 or so years, far more than any other nation in a similar time frame. <laughs> So, mate, we've got those two massive disasters with the fox and the rabbit. So you'd have <clears> thought by the 1930s, Australia might have seen the damage done by that and taken a bit more caution before they you know, introduced flora and fauna willy-nilly <clears throat> into the cane toad. Yeah, but you can't blame that one on the bit, surely. Well, you sort of can actually, mate, <laughs> because like rabbits, sugarcane had arrived in Australia with the first fleet. Okay. But as a crop, it, it proved to be a sporadic success at best. <clears throat> that is uh, up until 1862 when a guy with a wonderful name of Captain Louis Hope made a decent go of it on his farm in Moreton Bay, Queensland. Mm. Now, because anyone who's spent any time in far north Queensland or, you know, from Moreton Bay north would realise as British settlement moved north, they took the cane with it. Yes. And look, there were only two things that could adversely impact the cane. Drought, which is always a problem in Australia. Yep and the larvae of the native beetles. And this is such a problem that in 1900, a year before Federation, the Bureau of Sugarcane Experimentation Stations are formed to come up with a solution. Right. And the solution was... Don't tell me. Cane toads. Yes, mate, cane toads. Look, originally from South and Central America, they were introduced to Oceania and some parts of the Caribbean by wealthy plantation owners, I'm going to say Brits, (laughs) to help curb the troublesome cane beetle in those sugar fields. So the Australian farmers looked at this, and they're also troubled by the pesky beetle, so they imported 102 cane toads from Hawaii in 1935, mm. and a few short months later released 2,400 toads into their fields. Okay, I'm going to say this straight up. The first red flag should have been, wow, these ugly little buggers sure do breed quickly. I mean, you go from 102 to 2,400 in a matter of months. Mm. But here's the other problem, and they had not wrapped their head around this at the time. Now, the cane beetle, it lives in the uppermost parts of the cane stalk. And, well, cane toads don't actually leap. When they do jump, it's pretty much a horizontal affair. As such, the freshly released toads had little or no impact. They they looked at the tasty beetles way up on high and went, well, that's impossible. Why the hell did you bring me here? (laughs) May as well waddle off and cause havoc elsewhere. Having said that, it wasn't a major problem they couldn't take out the beetles because their main job was to take out the larvae at the base of the roots. Right. But they didn't really do that. They just waddled off and caused mischief. Right. Now, there was one entomologist who raised an alarm, and ironically enough, the guy's name was 
Walter Froggart. Oh, yeah, ribbit. Yeah, ribbit indeed. <laughs> he harboured genuine concerns that this toad could potentially become an environmental disaster. And look, due to his actions, the Federal Health Department briefly banned further releases of the cane toad. But, mate, sadly, the operative word here is briefly. Mm. A few months after the ban, Joseph Lyons, the Prime Minister, bows to a high-pressure campaign not only from the Queensland government mm. but from the Australian press as well. And, mate, that original population of 102 cane toads, mm-hmm. well, as we're talking here, it's over 200 million. Their range is expanding across the continent, particularly in North Australia, at some 50 kilometres a year. Look, not only have they preyed on native species, look, the damn thing itself is its just a lump of toxins. From its egg stage to adulthood, its consumption can cause an agonising death to any animal that eats it, be that a pet or an unfortunate native species. Oh, one last thing, all you old hippies who live up in the northern parts of, you know, where, licking them doesn't get you high. <laughs> all right. Now, Mikey, I'm not going to try and defend the Cantos, but there was one interesting side note that I came across, and this is from the zoologists who have been studying these cane toads, as you say, on their way across, particularly in northern Australia. You see, it turns out that your cane toads, they're an almost perfect demonstration of evolution live in action, a bit like sort of, you know, Darwin and his finches on the Galapagos, because it seems that as the cane toads go further west, so their legs get longer and longer. So if you find a cane toad from a colony that's out in the Northern Territory somewhere, its legs will be centimetres, sometimes 10 centimetres, longer than those that have stayed in the colony on the East Coast. And according to the zoologist, this is because Australia, being such a massive continent, each generation of new cane toads, it's the ones with the longest legs that thrive best, you know, by leaping and bounding their way into the next farmer's fields. And so it's the ones with the longest legs who breed first, while those with the shorter legs get left behind. Well, mate, thank you, cane toads, for your contribution to uh, Darwinian theory, but you're still an ugly, toxic beast. Okay, folks, we're talking invasive species, and obviously we started with the big two, the rabbits and the cane toads in Australia, but as Mikey promised, we're not just going to stay here, we're going to go a bit further afield. In fact, you're going to, first of all, take us to North America? I'm taking you to Manhattan, mate. Right. New York. And look, as as tragic as the cane toad and the rabbit and the foxes were, and are, this next one I'm about to talk about borders on the bird brain. And, and, and please forgive the pun. Right. It's March 6th, 1890 in Manhattan. Mm. And the bird brain in question is a guy called Eugene Shefflin. 1890. Yep. He comes from a prominent New York family. His father was a lawyer who founded a pharmaceutical company, which he and his brothers, well, they ran it with some considerable success. Mm. Now, one of the brothers, Samuel Shefflin, he was a religious author. He published eight books full of Christian fervour and passion. Mm. And Eugene also had a passion as well. By 1877, he was the chairman of the, and wait for this, the American Acclimatisation Society. The American, what the hell do they do? Well, mate, it's there in the title. The American Acclimatisation Society was committed to introducing European flora and fauna into the United States. Right. According to their own charter, their goal was to, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote here, release such foreign varieties of the animal and vegetable kingdom as may be useful or interesting. So they're doing this because they think it's a good idea. Yes, mate. Now, this is where it gets either just plain stupid or just plain weird and stupid, (laughs) depending on which historical camp you belong to. You see, it seems that in amongst this acclimatisation society, there were more than a few of your fair share of members with a theatrical bent. 
None more so than my man, my howler, Shiflin. In fact, and bizarre as it might sound, it appears one of the goals of the group was to release into Central Park in the middle of New York every species of bird ever mentioned in any of Shakespeare's plays or sonnets. Shakespeare's plays, right. Yeah, but there are the others who claim this is just too daft a plan to make you know, any sense. Right. However, as is my want, I'm more inclined to go with the preposterous version, a version which I hasten to add is also given the stamp of credulity by no less an authority than the Smithsonian Magazine. Right. We'll go back to 1869. Shiflin releases a shipment of freshly acquired sparrows into his own backyard. Mm. Now, the American poet and journalist, William Cullen Bryant, wrote this poem, The Old Worldy Sparrow. I'm going to quote. Okay. <clears throat> we hear the note of a stranger bird that ne'er till now in our land was heard. A winged settler has taken his place with Teutons and men of the Celtic race. He has followed their path to our hemisphere. The Old Worldy Sparrow is at last here. <laughs> oh dear. It's a pretty crap poem. <laughs> and it chirps on for a few more stanzas where he welcomes the sparrows to America, extolling its virtues as both a songbird and a predator for eating fruit insects. Okay. I do think, however, it does show the particularly literary bent shown by members of the American Acclimatisation Society. Because they're choosing all these birds because they feature it in, in Shakespeare. Yes, mate, and not just feature. It doesn't take much of a mention to bring a bird over to Manhattan to be released. I mean, they brought in skylarks and nightingales. They, they both get mentioned in Romeo and Juliet. Mm. As well as song thrushes, they get one mention in Midsummer Night's Dream. A few finches, also from Midsummer Night's Dream. You have to remember, too, Shakespeare's pretty fond of using birds. In his poems and dramatic works, he, he mentions birds some 54 times. Mm. However, up until the 6th of March, 1890, mm. the release of these birds, well, it had been not just unsuccessful, but rather a pointless death for the poor, blameless birds who'd, who'd perished in the harsh New York winter. Because let's, mm. let's face it, you know, New York gets much colder than London and Paris does in That's wintertime. Right. But on 1890, March the 6th, this time it's not sparrows that Shiflin releases, it's starlings. Right. Now, starlings are only mentioned once in Shakespeare. It's in Henry the Fourth. Act 1, Scene 3. Okay. You might remember this one. Hotspur fantasizes about using a starling to torture the king ah. by constantly repeating the name of one of the king's enemies. Ah, yes, Mortimer. Yeah, here's the quote. Nay, I'll have a starling. She'll be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer and give it to him to keep his anger still in motion. That's right. This single mention was enough for Shiflin, so much so that he had starlings imported at considerable personal expense from Europe. <laughs> okay. After surviving the sea trip, they were brought to his country estate and where he looked after them, they were then transported by carriage to Manhattan. Then with hope in his heart and bird droppings in his brain, <laughs> he released them into a snow-covered Central Park lawn. Right. But here's the thing. Unlike the other species which had stayed within the park and perished, the starlings, they quickly flew away. And ironically enough, they found shelter beneath the eaves of the American Museum of Natural History. Ooh. And then they got busy. Right. Well, actually, to be precise, a few of them died off. But from the surviving population of around 32 starlings, within a few years, they had completely overtaken Manhattan. Right. By 1914, mate, they had spread through much of the American Northeast. In fact, there were newspaper resorts of the residents in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, this gets a bit weird. Mm. 
nailing teddy bears into trees to try and scare the birds away from the nests. Wow. This obviously didn't work, but I'm, I'm kind of guessing that crucified teddy bears gave the children of Hartford nightmares for years afterwards. <laughs> Mate, by 1930, the starlings are such a problem that the White House has rigged up speakers that emitted owl hoots in a vain attempt to drive them away. Ooh. Also too, by the 1930s, the federal government decided the best way out of the starling problem was to... Um, Promote a cookbook, also too, it was the Depression, yes. suggesting such delights as starling pie. Oh, starling pie. Yeah, suffice to say, this did not catch on. Mm. But here's the thing. Today, their number is said to be well over 200 million birds that cause over a billion dollars worth of damage to the U.S. agricultural industry. Mm. They also carry multiple diseases that can be deadly to both livestock and humans, yep. as well as indigenous species. And here's another thing, too. In the years between 1990 and 2001, a large proportion of the 852 instances of planes crashing into massive bird flocks have involved starlings. And all because Shakespeare mentioned them once in Henry IV. Hi folks and welcome back and today we're talking about invasive species and let's be honest Paul, a lot of these invasive species have come from England. Yes. But you've got... But you've got a story that goes the other way. Well, that's right. And I have to say, I was secretly very excited when you told me about this episode, Mikey. Because you see, for me, it's actually a topic very close to my heart, very close to my childhood. Now, you know, the listeners probably know too well by now, I'm from Macclesfield, a small town just south of Manchester in England. And for a number of years, one of Macclesfield's few claims to fame was it was home to England's only wild population of, and wait for it, Wallabies. Wallabies? Wallabies, correct. Specifically, the red-necked wallaby, the Macropus refugrisius, all the way from Australia. In fact, to be completely precise, Mikey, it was the Tasmanian Macropus refugrisius fruticus, also known as Bennett's wallaby. Oh, I've heard of the Bennett's wallaby, but how the hell did they end up in Macclesfield? Well, you know, in that earlier episode, we talked about the earls of Macclesfield, and we said there were two incarnations, one with the Gerard family, one with the Parkers. Well, there's a third very important family from the town, and this is the family of the Brocklehurst. Now, the Brocklehurst originally were from Lancashire, but they moved to Macclesfield during the Industrial Revolution. Now, of course, at this point in the middle of the 19th century, this is when Manchester and the north is turning itself into the most successful mill towns in the world, particularly its cotton mills. But Macclesfield, at this stage, it's actually known as Button Town because it's one of the key centres for making buttons. Now... Making buttons, as you can imagine, is pretty finicky, intricate business. So most of the employees in the button factories are either girls or young women with you know, dexterous, nimble fingers. But John Brocklehurst, who's the patriarch of the family, he goes down to London one year and he visits a silk weaving mill in the east end of London. Now here, all the workers are Huguenot women, escaped from religious persecution in France and having brought their silk weaving skills with them. Ah. So old John Bogles, he says to himself, hang on, we've got a workforce full of women just like that back home. I wonder if I can get them to make silk instead of buttons and, you know, turn a, a far prettier penny. So the great tradition of silk manufacturing in Macclesfield was born, something that actually goes on to this day, Mikey. Yeah, hence our football team being known as the Great Silkman. 
Never heard of them. <laughs> okay, a bit more non-league than Premier League, I'll give you that. But the Queen does still wear outfits with silk buttons that were made in Macclesfield, and in many ways the town owes its whole fortune to that silk industry. So Brocklehurst does pretty well out of this. That's right, he makes a fortune, as do his sons and his grandsons, and in fact actually did my great-great-great-grandfather, who also owned one of the Macclesfield silk mills, but then lost it all, <laughs> but that's another story. That's amazing, my, gra- my grandfather lost a fortune as well, we should do a story on that. Anyway, the Brocklehurst, they become the rich and the most successful family for miles around. They have silk mills, they have their own bank, they're a shoe-in to get voted as Macclesfield's members of Parliament, and it doesn't take long until they're buying and building fancy homes all over the Macclesfield Cheshire area. Now, one of these stately homes, Mikey, is a place called Swithhamley Estate. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, it's up in the hills above Macclesfield, what is now part of the great Peak District National Park. Well, Sir Philip Lee... Brocklehurst, who at this stage is the head of the family. And he actually goes back to one of our earlier episodes, Mikey, because he was part of Edward Shackleton's Trans-Antarctica expedition we talked about in 1914-1917. Oh, he was on the Endurance. With the Endurance, that's right. So he lived in the main house up on the Swith Hamley estate, and his younger brother, Henry Courtney Brocklehurst, lived in the slightly smaller pad, Roaches Hall. So by now we're in the early 20th century... But young Henry, or Courtney as he preferred to be known, he didn't really like silk mills, Mike. He didn't really like Macclesfield. He much preferred to travel, but he could never settle. In fact, at one point, he gets a job as a game warden in Sudan. And lo and behold, he's actually the founder of the zoo, the first ever zoo in Khartoum. Now, (laughs) yes, but unfortunately, by the late 1930s, his wife's had enough of this. She's divorced him on grounds of adultery. He's lost his position in Sudan and he returns to England with his tail between his legs. But he realises he needs something to cheer himself up, so he decides to build his own private zoo with animals he buys from the more illustrious Whipsnade Zoo in the south of England, which to this day is actually still a beautiful wildlife safari park. But Brocklehurst Zoo, unfortunately, Mikey, it doesn't fare anywhere near as well, because in World War II, Courtney, he signs up to join the special services, the SAS. He gets himself dropped behind enemy lines in Burma to fight the Japanese. He's captured. He attempts to escape from a prison near Mandalay. And unfortunately, he's never seen again, presumed drowned in the Irrawaddy River. A fascinating story, Paul, but get to the Wallabies. (laughs) Okay, so news gets back to England and the zoo obviously no longer has an owner. The, The estate no longer has any money, no patron. And of course, food's being rationed because of the war. So the old gamekeepers, the animal carers at Roach Hall, they decide, well, the only thing they can do, the only way the animals might survive is if they open the gates and let them, you know, fend for themselves. Rather than doing what we do now, which is sadly, you know, and humanely put them down. Well, that's it. So they managed to find homes for some of the smaller animals and some of the apes and the monkeys. But before you know it, out on the hills above my hometown, in the middle of World War II, you've suddenly got Himalayan yaks, llamas, a niglai antelope, and five redneck Tasmanian wallabies. Now, unfortunately, most of the animals did die that first winter, although there's stories that the Himalayan yaks clung on for a few years on the moors, and there's evidence that they've been harassing cars, even tipped over a coal truck. But the wallabies, they actually take to their new habitat quite well, and I suppose this is where it comes in handy that they were Tasmanian rather than just your average Australian wallaby, because, of course, they were slightly better adapted to the cold, and Tasmanian wallabies only produce offspring once a year in the summer unlike the main wallabies that you know, pop out of Joey whenever they like. So their offspring did survive. In fact, they don't just survive, they thrive. And because they're not a particular nuisance to anyone, and unlike you know, your rabbits down under, they don't upset 
the local ecosystem, so they're allowed to continue rather than being hunted. In fact, by the 1970s and 80s, Mikey, they've built up a mob, which I think is the technical term, of about 50 animals. And that, Mikey, those numbers were enough for the zoologist to declare this chunk of northern England home to its very own wild wallaby population, (laughs) one successful enough to breed and sustain itself outside the parameters of human intervention. Now, you see, the nice thing about Macclesfield, Mikey, is you can leave your front door and in a couple of hours you can be up in the hills over to Buxton in Derbyshire, or if you go slightly further south through Winkle and Wildwood Clough, you find yourself at Three Shires Head and onto a dramatic chain of gritstone known as the Roach which is where you get Roach Hall. Now, Roach Hall is maybe beautiful green lawns and Grecian urns, but it is sitting at the foot of this glowering cliff, and that's where the name Roaches come from. It's nothing to do with your Australian cockroaches, I'm afraid. It's a landmark, and it's derived from the French word for rocks, les roches. And these roaches, they form a rocky ridge at the western tip of England's Peak District, Britain's oldest national park. Incredibly, it's in and amongst these rocks and moors that the wallabies decided to carve out a new home for themselves. And that's where I would occasionally catch a glimpse of wallabies when I was out on a walk as a young boy with my old man. Mate, I'm so glad to hear that you uh, grew up in such a wonderful hiking part of the world. But (laughs) what happened to the wallabies? Okay, well, unfortunately, it does seem that the last ones from this mob did die in the very cold winter of 2010. Now, some people say there are still occasional sightings, but that's pretty unreliable. And even if it's true, they probably aren't really part of the original group. There's a second set of wallabies on the loose? (laughs) Yeah, I know that might come across... As pretty ridiculous, Mikey, but actually it's not as far-fetched as it sounds because another mob of wallabies have now been found on a small uninhabited island in the middle of Loch Lomond in Scotland and there might even be some wallabies hopping around on the Isle of Man. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. Right.